The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So tonight's the last of our 11 weeks, our 11-week class, and we'll look at the Four Noble Truths tonight. And... uh, you know, being a human being, uh, we know the Four Noble Truths. We might not know the particulars of how the Buddha talks about it, but he's really pointing to the reality of having, getting tight and feeling burdened by life. And then what happens when that arises for us? I like to tell this story that Kamala Master tells from her own life when she was married and had her young children and her teacher Manindaji was visiting from India. I think he was having some surgeries and she was taking care of him in Hawaii where she lived. And and at that time, as she tells the story, um, her daughter, who was I think like a preteen or just a young teen, um, got into a big argument with her father and they were really yelling yelling and she finally got upset and took off into her bedroom and slammed the door of her bedroom really hard and then Kamala's husband at the time and father of this daughter runs to the door and she had I think locked the door and started pounding on the door and all the while of course Kamala's sitting at the dinner table with her esteemed Dharma teacher <laughs> sitting next to her, and uh, you know you know how that would be, where you feel responsible for the mental health and the whatever the behavior of your family there on display in such a vivid, maybe not so wholesome way. And uh, her teacher Menindaji just simply put his hand on Kamala's arm and said, "It's the law." It's the law. Like, you know, we might have said something like, sometimes it's like this. Sometimes it's like this. Sometimes human beings express suffering. They express anger. They express hatred. They express, I can't take it anymore. And then the real question is, Whatever we see and whatever that triggers in us, whatever feeling we have, then are we going to take that desire personally, whatever moves in our own mind and heart? And this is the, you know, this is the study of the Four Noble Truths. It's really, we need to ground it in the most simple way. And ultimately, when we, you know, after we study it as a map, and we've been learning these different maps here in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, then the, the real value is when we understand it directly, we can, we know what the map is pointing to in terms of our own experience, how easy it is for the mind to take disturbances personally or to take the reactive patterns of our mind, of our heart personally. And it 
you know, how many times today, whether it was listening to the news or somebody said something to us, some interaction we had today that triggered a strong feeling, strong emotion, a seductive thought, right, that we wanted to take personally. Because in a way, desire that we take personally, desire is just a movement of the heart or you could say a movement of intention to do, to believe, to think. So whenever there's that movement into life, into action, it's the most common thing being a human being. There's nothing bad about desire. And this is really the tricky thing because if we mistake this teaching, then we, we basically come to the conclusion, boy, if only I weren't alive, if only I didn't have desire, if only there wasn't a movement in my heart, in my mind, all day long, one movement after another, well then, maybe I could be free. But the real trick is having these movements. Right? So we're engaged, we're intimate, We're feeling things, we're seeing things, we're thinking things. Things are moving. But can we learn that when there's attachment, there's suffering, there's stress. And where there's no attachment, there's both the possibility of freedom and the possibility of responding in a natural and appropriate way. So some of you know that in this talk, the talk on the Four Noble Truths, which is also said to be the Buddha's first Dharma talk, at the end of that Dharma talk, you know, as a story at least, it's, it's really beautiful how in telling, teaching the, his friends about his understanding in terms of the causes for suffering and the possibility of release, that one of the one of his Dharma friends got it, and then they sort of in how they tell this story, they make a big deal out of it. They talk about how throughout the cosmos everything shook, right? Because what happened in that moment is the Buddha's awakening, what he had come to realize and understanding his own mind, then could be expressed in a way that other people could have the same insight, the same liberating insight. Like the reality, like a mind, a human mind, like our mind, realizing the freedom of not grasping, of non-grasping, non-attachment in a deep way. I mean, we can kind of get it, some flavors of it. Certainly, we can get, get it intellectually. And even beyond that, we can probably get some whiffs of intuitively what what that means, a life of non-attachment, our heart not clinging. Right? There's some, probably for most of us, some intuition of there wouldn't be a problem. There wouldn't be problems. And, you know, we often equate the messiness of the world And so because there is suffering in the world and there is injustice in the world and there is, you know, even within our families, close friendships, 
there's often immense suffering around us. Confusion, pain of loss. So we, we might imagine that, well, I can't be free of suffering until I'm in a different place where everybody else is free. Everybody else's life is rosy. My life is rosy. Everybody else's life is fine. Nobody has physical pain. Nobody has the experience of loss. And we start telling ourselves a story. It's basically we're making up this story or repeating a story of some kind of a imagined heaven where everything's perfect. And then that equates to freedom from suffering. So then when we hear the Buddha talking and other people, of course, pointing to a different path of freedom, a different path of freedom from suffering that isn't about needing a different world, a different life situation, a different experience. It's really provocative, you know, the just even reflecting on what it would be to be a human being in a messy world where there is injustice, where there is very real suffering, where our personalities have all kinds of conditioning that's not very helpful or useful and often creates suffering for others. It's really interesting now to explore whether your mind in different ways have has rejected the possibility of real ease, real freedom, real love with the conditions of this life as they are right now? Or do we imagine that it would have to be later or at another situation, a better time and place? So it's said that when this practitioner, this friend of the Buddha's, this Dharma friend of the Buddha's, Kondonya, something like that was his name, when he understood that, that the whole world shook, right, like a spiritual earthquake in all hearts, all the way up to the most subtle realms of existence, all the way down to the hells, that, oh, it's like a little crack in the delusion of, you know, this isn't it. What is that line from Leonard Cohen's song, That's How the Light Gets In? Does anybody know that whole line? Something about the crack and that's how the light... Crack in the bell? Yeah. But it's just a beautiful line in one of his songs. right? And it's like, what... What insight, what understanding or intuition shifts the mind from the basic view of either, the basic view is either I have to fix this world and make it heaven or I need to get the heck out of here. Because what delusion tells us is this isn't it. And that's what the Buddha says right from, that was the first line or the first few lines of his talk. He said, basically, you know, what I came to understand is pursuing nice things in this world 
That's not the way. Like fixing the world so that you have only nice experiences, that doesn't lead to release. Rejecting the world doesn't lead to release. And so then he goes on to talk about what leads to the release is getting intimate with the tightness of the heart, the tightness of attachment, the tightness of fear, the tightness of greed, getting intimate with it so that the mind realizes that the problem isn't the world, the problem is attachment. The problem isn't that things are moving, the problem is the friction the mind creates, the resistance the mind presumes is functional or useful. And it's always, you know, it's always this way, isn't it, that the problem, the cause of our suffering, the cause of things getting heavy, is that we're trying to help ourselves. But we're trying to help ourselves based on not really understanding what the problem is. And boy, I mean, when you look, when you study history, isn't this the basic teaching of history of human beings or even the basic history of families, when you look at families and the suffering in families, it's like people trying to help but making things worse. Thinking, you know, telling themselves stories, this is what this person needs or this is what needs to happen here. And then things get worse because the missing piece is we haven't, because it's so challenging and scary, we haven't bothered to become intimate with the problem. You know, we often, in organizations, this is just a common, it's common sense, like, okay, what's the problem we're trying to solve here? What are we trying to fix here? And this should be central to spiritual practice. This is really where the Four Noble Truths come from. It's a human being having enough humility as a human being that suffers, that gets tight at times, that feels burdened by life at times. And so that human being goes, okay, what's the problem I'm trying to solve? And I know a lot of you know this story, but it's, it's a fun story and it's, very, it's a very useful story about you know, the farmer going to see the Buddha eventually tracking down the Buddha, explaining to the Buddha how hard it is being a farmer, dealing with the weather, dealing with the farm animals, dealing with the pests, dealing with my family, dealing with my health, dealing with the prices that I get for my crops or for my animals, and on and on, just sort of laying out all of the uncertainties, all the insecurities that go with being a farmer. And the Buddha says, you know, I can't really help you because everybody has this set of problems, you know, whatever that is, 83 problems, 102 problems, but whatever it is, everybody has that set of problems. And it just comes with the territory of being a human being, whether you're a farmer or a homekeeper or a lawyer or a janitor or whatever you might do, life comes with a set of problems. And the farmer storms off frustrated, having spent a lot of his time finding, tracking down the Buddha. And just before he's out of earshot, the Buddha says, even though I can't help you with your 83 problems, I can help you with your 84th problem. 
and kind of perks the interest of the farmer. So what's that? And the Buddha says, well, your 84th problem is you don't like having 83 problems. right? Because this is really the teaching about attachment to desire. Naturally, as a human being, and a condi- being a conditioned human being, a personality that's been conditioned by culture, by our genetics, we're going to have all kinds of desires, and we're going to have all kinds of fears, and it just comes with the territory of having a conditioned mind, a personality. So what the Buddha does, what his teachings are about, is not wanting or trying to make that existential situation different. You know, we have a conditioned mind. There's really no way to jettison it or get rid of it. But we can shift our understanding from the conditioned mind with all of its fears, all of its hopes, all of its desires, that it's personal. We can shift from that point of view to that it's nature. And this is really the second noble truth. The first noble truth is it's not easy having a conditioned mind. It's not easy easy experiencing my life when I'm not getting what I want. Or when I experience that I am getting what I want, that I realize it's not going to last forever. So these basic, you know, given that we have preferences, that we have hopes and fears that, that are conditioned in, the conditioned realm is just unsatisfactory. It's, it's not really the world. It's literally not designed to be satisfactory. You know, the conditioned nature of what comes and goes in our lives. It's not here to satisfy us. It's sort of, when we say it like that, it makes so much sense. Like, why would we think that this, this sort of wild thing we call the universe why would we think that it was designed to satisfy the very particular, particularly conditioned nature of my mind? You know, like I like white bread, spongy white bread, or I like that kind of French crusty bread, or I like the kind of whole grain bread. Or, you know, why would we expect that the world, the conditions, would match up with how our mind has been shaped or what its preferences are. You know, that we ended up in Minnesota. Maybe we're one of those people that we were destined to be in the tropics, you know, or we were destined to be in the country, but here we are in the city, or we're in the city when we were destined to be out in the country, or I wasn't supposed to end up with this person, but here I am with this person, or I don't like my personality. This is not the personality I meant to have, you know, why am I like this? Have you ever heard yourself kind of saying something stupid, like a stupid joke? And it's just like, it's in your nature to be that way. When I was a young adult, you know, I got really into spiritual practice, meditation practice, and yoga and Buddhism. And and back then, in the early 80s, it was very, you know, it was unusual, and especially in the context of my family, unusual. And I didn't feel comfortable talking about it so much. So whenever, I didn't come visit my family too much, but whenever I did, you know, I, I just didn't want to deal with 
being who I was. So I just, I, I kind of became this, like I just joke about everything. I was like light and not serious about anything. And I kind of got stuck in that rut. Like that's who I was with my family. I didn't know how to be real in a way. So I was sort of the funny guy and I would do funny things. And and it was, you know, it's just like these ways of being that we end up with that we don't even like. And we, but yet we're sort of trapped. And you get that way, we get that way with certain relationships too where we sort of fall into a pattern with somebody at work or one of our relatives. or And before we know it, it has some momentum and we don't know how to be another person with that other person. This is the only person we know how to be. And it's not a person we like being. But there we are. And uh, so... Part of understanding the first noble truth is really getting the conditioned nature. It's too late to want to have other hopes and other fears. We have the hopes and fears that we have, the preferences that we have, the desires that we have. The only uh, avenue we have towards freedom is to realize that Although there are these preferences, these hopes and fears, these conditioned movements of my heart, these habits, I don't have to misunderstand them. That I can understand what they are. They're inclinations of this heart. They're tendencies to be this way in this kind of situation and that way in another kind of situation. And I can make peace with them. I can relate with non-attachment. So that's the second noble truth where we're really beginning to understand that the cause of suffering is the misunderstanding of these movements of the heart. And so the freedom from suffering is understanding what they are. Misunderstanding is attachment, identification, grasping. Understanding is the abandoning of attachment, the abandoning of identification and grasping. And even though, you know, we talk about the third noble truth, the freedom from suffering, this insight into non-suffering, the insight into freedom, the insight into the heart's release, we talk about it often as a high, you know, like way out there experience for the really wise people for the enlightened ones. But in our own ordinary ways, we are realizing the third noble truth all the time. I often mention this like in the course on Nibbana or when we do the longer course on the four noble truths, which will be coming up in a couple of years. We'll go in more in depth for eight weeks in the four, with the four noble truths. But I mentioned this wonderful little booklet you can find online by Ajahn Buddha Dasa, one of the better known uh, great Thai meditation masters of the last century. Some of you know Santikaro, Santikaro, who comes and teaches here. He was the translator with, for Ajahn Buddha Dasa for a number of years, a monk under Ajahn Buddha Dasa, and translated for him, and is even now translating some of his teachings still into books. Um, but anyway, Ajahn Buddhadasa has this little booklet called Nibbana for Everyone. So you can even Google that 
Nibbana for Everyone by Ajahn Buddhadasa. But probably the title is enough, Nibbana for Everyone. It's like 10 pages. And in that booklet, one of the things, the point he makes is that, you know, regular, ordinary, non-Buddhist human beings cannot exist for very long without experiencing, directly experiencing the refreshment of Nibbana, right? One way or another, we will experience the release of attachment or we won't last very long, right? So we have moments where we don't necessarily clearly recognize these moments for what they are, but there are moments already happening in our lives lives where the heart releases its grasping, its clinging, its attachment. It was there, all worked up, all tight, and then released. Now, that release may not last long. Sometimes when, because we feel refreshed, because it feels, the heart feels lighter. I know it sounds crazy to say this, but then it appears to the mind to make sense to pick up attachment again because life feels workable. It feels light. It doesn't feel so oppressive. So why not get excited about becoming somebody, becoming perfect, you know, or becoming the person we want to be, that we think we'd be happy. So we sort of take up attachment again precisely because the heart feels refreshed and light and free. So we take the bait again interesting how sometimes joy and release itself, when misunderstood, leads the heart right back into attachment, into grasping, wanting to become somebody, wanting to get rid of something, wanting to renovate the house, wanting to fall in love, wanting to make the world a better place. But the attachment, like we construct a somebody who will be happy when that happens, which means that this somebody, because I'm not that somebody yet, this somebody's not happy. So we choose, literally, unconsciously, of course, but the mind is choosing to be tight in order so that when that promise is fulfilled, I'll be released. But we can have the idea that I'll be happy when when I become this without constructing right now in this moment, the experience of unhappiness because I'm not that yet, right? You see, so we here in the mind, the nature of the mind, the nature of the conditioned mind, the diluted mind, right here it constructs, it recreates the experience of someone who's suffering, who imagines that they'll be free from suffering when they're there. So I'm not there, so I'm suffering. Right? So even with Buddhist ideals, like I'm pretty sure I'm not fully awake, therefore this is not okay. Right? How do I know that this is not okay? Because I'm not, I don't look like my imagination tells me Nibbana looks like. Whatever that might look like. However our mind constructs it. So this is why the Buddha didn't spend a lot of time talking about freedom, describing freedom, because it would be fuel for us constructing an image, a becoming 
form of suffering, right? There are three types of suffering. Wanting a nice, pleasant experience, wanting to become somebody, wanting not to become somebody. All of these are just different expressions of attachment where we cling to the idea of when I have popcorn with lots of butter and nutritional yeast, a little cayenne, right, and tamari. But not too much because it makes it soggy. So, and you, it's like the key about the tamari is you have to... Sp- Sprinkle in a way that particular kernels aren't getting doused so that it's soggy. So it's just like little droplets spread evenly. I can talk to you more about this. Just check (laughs) in with me at the end. (laughs) And so that's called like the idea that, that that experience, that pleasant experience of having popcorn the way you like it, that that, will be happiness, means then not having it now is unhappiness. So we've just defined this as not happy, not good enough. So we're a suffering being. We've literally here, naturally, in the mind, organically, constructed the reality of an unhappy human being by thinking, constructing the idea that, boy, that would be nice to have popcorn just the way I like it. And it's same thing with becoming, like a vision of ourselves, who we'd like to be, and the same thing with this idea of, I just want to be out of here. This is just too much. So this is a powerful, even intellectually, even as like philosophy, this is very potent because what happens when we see how much this makes sense, even on an intellectual level, is we start to realize that we, the responsibility for suffering is always here and now. So it really undercuts the tendency to blame or to imagine the causes of suffering out there, other people making me unhappy. You're making me unhappy. Politics are making me unhappy. People's neglect of the environment are, is making me unhappy. The fact that my partner or my friend can't really see me, can't accept me, can't be there for me is making me unhappy, causing my suffering. That my body aches, you know, that I can't count on my body or my eyes to see clearly or my ears to hear well. So we have all these external things, but when we realize that Oh no, whenever I misunderstand sense pleasure, whenever I misunderstand an idea about becoming somebody or misunderstand the idea of getting out of here, being done with something, whenever the mind misunderstands it so that it feels justified in the attachment, the clinging, the grasping, getting tight, then that and only that is the cause for suffering. And then our job, if this starts to make sense, is to start directly in our experience correlating whenever there seems to be a suffering person, me, correlating that. So we ask the question, is the mind attached to something? What's the mind grasping? 
What's the mind attached to? What's the mind struggling with? Is there a possibility of non-grasping, non-attachment, non-identification, non-struggling with this? So just now, like, to whatever degree right now, it seems to you that this experience, that you're not fully free in this moment right now, then, then in terms of that sense that you're not fully free, you don't count yourself as one of the bodhisattvas, one of the enlightened ones, one of the luminous beings, then we should ask ourselves, well, is there attachment? Where's the attachment? The Buddha says that if I'm not fully awake, if I'm not fully free, if I'm not radiating love and wisdom, then there's some attachment. So what's the mind attached to now? Often it's very subtle, like, we don't, so subtle and so commonplace, we don't notice, like, I often use the phrase, well, this isn't it. Like being attached to the idea, well, this isn't it. Yeah. Yeah, it might be, it might relate to compassion. How do we know this isn't it, this moment? Right? We, we want to really look. Because the, the shift isn't that it, the moment needs to be different, but a different attitude or a different understanding of what this is. Like being open instead of being certain. This isn't it. I mean, this is why people like Thich Nhat Hanh and other teachers talk about like a moment of awareness, wisdom, mindfulness, is a moment of freedom. Because when the mind is open, then it's not falling into the habit or it's not confused by the habit of attachment, of clinging. It's just not getting caught in that tendency to take things personally. So again, the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha says, in our, from our ordinary frame, there is suffering Experience feels not satisfying. And so that makes us susceptible to the idea of a sense pleasure or the idea of becoming or the idea of getting out of the suffering. Right? So there is suffering. There's the ordinary pain. Even when things are pleasant, there's some sense that it won't last. And even in a more subtle way, just the the absence of ground, like life keeps changing, so the, the absence of stability in conditioned experience makes it not satisfying. And so because of that, the mind is really susceptible to falling into the cause for suffering, which is to one more time imagine some pleasant experience that will provide some relief from the unsatisfactoriness of the moment, or a good massage, or some funny, some really intelligent, funny TV show or movie, right? I mean, it's like how much we're willing to pay for some real entertainment. It's like it's like a precious commodity. It's like deep sleep, you know, to escape the mundane existence by 
delighting in somebody's cleverness or their, you know. Sometimes, you know, it's not, humor is not always negative. Some, some of it's really uplifting in its own way, kind of shining the light on the nature of the mind and foolishness of our mind, but not in a mean-spirited way. But it's very temporary. Then we always have to land, you know. There's that yucky feeling like, that's it? It's over? I've been watching John Oliver's program that comes on YouTube a day after the HBO TV show on Sunday nights, I think, where he does a little riff on something. It's called uh, Last Week Tonight or something like that. Anyway, uh, so I watched that today because it's on Monday. You can get it on YouTube on Monday. And it's only like 20 minutes, 15 minutes, something like that. But I notice it's always the same at the end. It's like there's always that, like whenever we escape into a sense pleasure or escape into some idea of becoming, some becoming project or wanting to get out of it project, like deep sleep is sort of like get me out of here. Even samadhi, deep, you know, using meditation to sort of get a break from life. But then the sit ends or the knees start to hurt after a while. Right? And, you, and then you've got to go back into the world, back into the experience of your body, back into the relationships. So really notice that whatever the craving is, the attachment is, it never is fulfilling. It can't because it always ends. Sense desire, wanting to become, wanting things to end. We always end right back in the middle in this world with a conditioned mind. And so, it, you know, if we pay attention, it just kind of gets deeply, it just becomes deeply embedded in the mind, this realization. It's not about indulging in the world, and it's not about escaping the world. It's about shifting the understanding from attachment to non-attachment. Being tight to being in the world with no tightness. Which for us means in the beginning not getting tight about being tight. right? Because that's where we begin. We begin as suffering beings, tight beings. So we have to, this is, the, this is why practice is so hard, is the initial, you know, as we believe in, trust in, have confidence in the Four Noble Truths, suffering and the end of suffering, we have to start by opening to being a suffering being without that being a cause for getting tight. We have to accept the limitations of the moment, whatever they might be. And part of that is the residual of having been a tight person. So the unpleasantness can be quite extreme, which is why we need a lot of confidence. Otherwise, we're going to fall back into the habits. Or I should say, we will fall back into the three types of craving for sense pleasure, becoming, wanting to get out of here. So we need a lot of forgiveness, and as you said, a lot of compassion, because it takes time to really integrate the insight Struggling isn't the way. I mean, it's so heartbreaking to see 
for me personally to see my mind gravitating toward sense pleasures, becoming, and wanting to get out of here. And I kind of, I'm, you know, I'm forgiving, I'm patient, but you know how it is. Sometimes the parent needs to stand up and say, honey, you've seen this. How many times have you seen this? Do you really need to do it again? You know, so there's that that really uh, important place where we don't want to hate ourselves for having a conditioned mind, but we also want to be a grown-up about it. Hey, has this worked? Where do we end up? Where have you ended up each time you do this? You know, this habit like for me going home and checking the news before I go to bed. And I have, you know, six or so news sites that I'd like to go to. And, uh, but I just, it's so clear, the subtle, not so subtle sometimes, hunger. I just give me an interesting, I mean, it's almost like, and it's nice to kind of exaggerate, like give me something interesting. I want something interesting. Oh, I've already seen that. And it's so humiliating, like when <coughs> the previous time I checked it out was not that long ago, so that so many of what I see, I've already seen. It's like, oh, because it kind of points out the desperation of the mind. I really want something to get lost in, something to absorb into. So, But, but what we'd like is, it, even if it's just a little thread of insight, we want to just Keep collecting the data points like, honey, this isn't working. Do you see? Do you see? This isn't the way. So don't worry about not going in the right direction. What we want to make sure, though, when we're not going in the right direction, when we're pursuing sense pleasures and, per- and becoming and not becoming as avenues for happiness, we want to collect the data points like, oh, honey, that's not working. That's not working that's not working because it's just a matter of having enough data points to overwhelm the past conditioning, which is suggesting, I think this is the way. There's got to be something here. <laughs> you know, the first few corn chips didn't do it, but I think the next handful is going to do it. <laughs> or whatever it might be. You know, or, you know, sometimes we have these conversations like with a partner or a good friend. And we're trying to sort of make a point, and they're just not buying it for whatever reason. And it's like you just kind of dig in. Well, let me let me say what I just said again. <laughs> you know, and they're kind of going. They're they're sort of like getting defensive. They're sort of digging in because they see what you're trying to do. It's like I'm not not necessarily consciously, but somehow intuiting that you have some emotional need to be right here. And uh, you know, I'm not going to play that game, or I'm not going to give into that. And it's just, so it's really useful to catch these little places of desperation where we're really, there's a sense of a somebody really looking for satisfaction and not getting it. Because this is when the deluded tendencies show their hands and that's where we can collect a data point that has a real impact. Because the mind, the just sort of, the mind that is just collecting data honestly 
it sees that and it goes, oh yeah, this really isn't the way. And those data points have a real impact on the force of conditioning, the force of habit. And eventually, we'll overwhelm it and there will be moments of the mind giving up on the habit of grasping. And then we'll have an authentic experience of the third noble truth, realizing the mind free of grasping, or as Ajahn Chah calls it, the reality, a moment of the reality of non-grasping. So there's a moment, there's a mind knowing this, but there's no attachment in in that mind in that moment. Oh, this is the mind. So the Buddha says, realize that experience. This is a mind without attachment. This is a mind without grasping. Oh, because then the mind realizes that this is a possibility. Otherwise, we're living under the ingrained assumption that attachment, struggle, tightness is endemic to existence. It's just being tight. Just it's, it's so commonplace, we don't actually know that. And often when people first experience it, it's like a free fall in the sense of being terrifying. Because here's the real kick, kicker. Feeling safe for kind of a normal conditioned mind, feeling safe is synonymous with being tight. It's the tightness that we take as being familiar. So when the grasping, the tightness falls away, it's like a free fall, there's no ground because it was the tightness, it was the suffering, the tension itself that made us feel real, like I'm a real person trying to have happiness, trying to practice in order to be free. And it's the tension itself that makes us feel real. So when that falls away and there's an authentic experience of the third noble truth, the release of suffering, it takes a while to realize what's going on. Oh, this is the release. Because the experience, the energetic experience is as, is of no, is as if there is no ground. No, it's like uh, the moment doesn't feel contained or held. It's open. It's free. It's not a problem. But it's very initially very unfamiliar. So eventually the mind realizes, oh, this is the way. And then from that insight, this is the way. Then the thinking mind, the conceptual conceptualizing mind, it reconfigures what life is all about. And that's the fourth noble truth, is that reconfiguring, oh, then I guess, given this experience of non-grasping, I guess this is what life is about. You know, right view. Reality of non-grasping. Right intention, love, compassion, letting go. Right? That's what right intention means. Right livelihood, like living in a way that doesn't reinforce the causes for suffering, doesn't add fuel to the habits of suffering. And keeping the mind clear about this truth of non-grasping. Keeping the mind stable and clear so it can keep this in mind, keep this in view. So I'll leave it here.
save a little time to hear from folks in the room what you've been learning about suffering and the end of suffering. Of course, any questions that you have. So what comes to mind? Remember to speak right into the mic. What have you been learning? What questions do you have? Yeah, L. You want to pass it back to L? Yeah, I th- think there is a great deal of the truth in what you say, and we we ha- have to keep reminding ourselves that that you know that, that we're ourselves to things, and that's causing us misery. But uh, what if I think though that 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 some situations are very difficult. Like I knew a man who was a quadriplegic, and he would have done anything to get out of that situation. Uh, so I think it was just normal for him, you know, to keep thinking that someday they would cure it or miracle would come. So how would you handle uh, an extremely difficult situation like that? Yeah. Well, the, to begin with, like when we feel... When we notice that the mind is attached because something big has happened and there's a lot of the mind is struggling and doesn't is not willing to accept the situation at hand, we can accept that. right? So, oh, the mind is really caught. The mind is really invested in this is not okay. And how does that feel? So remember, Al, I said it's really useful when we're struggling, when we are attached, it's really useful with love and compassion to notice what that's like. Oh, this really hurts. Not wanting to be in this situation really hurts. That's what we can do. We can have compassion because compassion means that you're willing to be close with the reality of suffering. And the reality of suffering is it hurts. And that changes the mind because the alternative would be suffering and resisting it. Now there's suffering and acceptance of it or a willingness to be close to it. And that's a step in the right direction. So... Having compassion for not liking the situation at hand, the willingness to be close, the willingness to honestly acknowledge this is really hard to bear. This is really unpleasant. That helps. Yeah. Yeah, Helen, please. Um, I had a question on the second type of craving of becoming. Um, and did you say that can be also like your projects? Can you talk a little bit about that, what the different becomings can be? Yeah. Yeah, so there's like two kinds of pleasantness, with well, three. So there's the pleasantness of getting an experience that you want. 
But there's also the pleasantness of becoming somebody you want to be. And then there's the pleasantness of getting rid of something, getting away from something, right? So then just ask yourself which of those it is. So when you're thinking about a project, is there a pleasant sense experience that's really driving the mental proliferation? Or is it more an idea of who you will be when that project is completed? But it doesn't really matter which of the three cravings. What really matters is the seductiveness of the story right? that seemingly justifies the getting tight. Like, this isn't it, but when I, you know, went, and what we're actually pointing to is a thought, and the thought's not out there, the thought's right here, you know, but it, um, it seems like it's out there, like, no, not this, but yeah, that, when that project is done, or when I... So even that. like cleaning the basement, or remodeling the house? Or enlightenment. So enlightenment. let's just put it right in terms of our practice. We can use the idea of enlightenment to cause suffering as much as we could use finding the perfect partner, getting into shape, or any other of the normal things that we that kind of seduce the mind. Yeah, thanks, Helen. Yeah, Haya, and then first Haya, and then I don't know your name. I guess I'd just like to share that something I came with or you know, realized this past week is I've shared with you at times that, you know, yep, I've dealt with depression and whatever. And what was really cool is realizing that, okay, there's suffering and there's things that, you know, I, that I experience feelings or whatever, but I learned that going to the same place, you know, the habits of my mind that of what I do with those and where they go, I mean, it's been a long road of going the same place, the same place over and over again. This last week, I just finally realized, oh, I don't have to go there anymore. And that was just the neatest thing to realize. I'm still not sure where I'm going, but it doesn't have to be there. And it's just being experiencing the feelings that are there and just say, oh, okay, this is a sense that I'm feeling right now. So I just wanted to share what that part that I learned this past week. Yeah, and that, that's called, you know, in that moment you talked about, Haya, is when the mind realizes that the grasping should be let go of. And that's a realization. It isn't me trying to get rid of the grasping. It's just the mind actually sees that it's not functional. It's not helpful. And if we can be patient, letting go will happen. The mind will drop its habit of struggling in that way. Yeah, it's kind of like what we were talking about last week, the staccato thing that I've been noticing too, that it just, yeah. oh, that's already gone. That feeling's gone already. Now I have this, you know, and then just realizing how, you know, if I think that, oh, man, I'm depressed all the time, it's like, no, I'm not. That's that's not, you know, that would be attaching to that and holding it, but I don't have to hold on anymore. Yeah, thanks, Haya. Yeah. Wait for the mic, though, so we can all hear you. Um, I kind of lost my train of thought, but um, many things that you said touched uh, what I wanted to maybe bring up. But I guess the last one would be, um, is that do you ever, like, lose that, like, hope that maybe what you originally thought you could do in your life 
um, that you had hope for, uh, ever was lost, and then how do you bring that back? Like, um, for me, example, I'm a photographer, and I thought, I, I mean, I got a degree in photography, a reputable school in Chicago, four-year degree, whatever. I worked with Target, did all this kind of stuff, but I had been beaten down by many other things, relationships, life, all kind of getting DUIs, that kind of sort, being in prison for six months. Um, it's just like, can you bring yourself back up and feel the way that you used to be? Yeah, that's the great thing about understanding the heart and mind as something that's conditioned. It's like uh, Sylvia Burstein says it in a really nice way. She says, it doesn't matter how much of life has been written, you can always write another chapter. And because our mind, our heart, our habits they're a conditioned, a conditional phenomena, right? So we can plant new seeds right now by forgiving ourselves, by when you reflect on what's happened in your life, like really looking back with compassion and forgiveness, and but also willing to learn like what didn't help, like how you managed the difficulties in your life, what helped and what didn't help. It's like, all of that past experience, as painful and difficult as it's been, it's also a beautiful teacher. It can teach you a lot. Now, in hindsight, you don't have to go back through it again. But when it does naturally arise in your mind, you can almost like you're asking yourself, well, what can that teach me about how to be a good person, a happy person now? Having Now remembering, oh yeah, that happened. What? How can that inform my life now? But do you do you really believe that that can make you happy again, or do you think that it'll keep you kind of subdued? No, I mean, it's just what we imagine the past to be. Like I'm saying, if you see your past as a teacher, then it can be very liberating. If you see your past as an anchor that somehow defines the essential you. What about the other people in your life that keep, that think about that, that yeah, but keep you, you can, down? You can show them you're a different person, right? It may take a while, but you have to, you know, part of it is just willing to do the day-by-day work, right? And it's planting new seeds, writing new chapters, and really staying focused on that. I can always, in any moment, I can plant a seed. So even if really dark or difficult stuff is coming up because maybe somebody from the past is triggering, reminding you of who you used to be, in that moment you can plant the seed of compassion. I know this, this, isn't, this moment is not easy for me right now. And I'm going to do the best I can. And even if I make a mistake, I'm going to understand it and learn not to do it again. And that's the thing about uh, the way the Buddha talks about this experience of life is we're in it for the long haul, right? So even if you want to imagine lifetimes after lifetimes, doesn't matter how many mistakes have been made. There's, we've learned a lot from the past too. And right now our responsibility in this moment is to plant a good seed. And then in the next moment, plant a good seed of compassion, 
kindness, forgiveness, wisdom, patience. Thanks for bringing that up. It's 9 o'clock, so we need to take a moment, just let go of the words. It's been a great time being together these last 11 weeks. So let's take a few moments of silence to appreciate the community and the collective wisdom here in the room. Our spiritual ancestors, all the women and men who have practiced before us, who have shared their insights one generation after the next. And then in a wholesome way, feeling responsible to be the this generation of wise, compassionate human beings doing our best to be wise, to see things as they are, and to plant good seeds, and to be part of the causes and conditions for real happiness and freedom from suffering here in our heart and in the world. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.